listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to our podcast live with the ABA section of Antitrust Law. This is Anora Wan, and I am the host for today's episode. Joining me now, I have Jesse as a co-host and Alan. Welcome to the show. Before we get started, please tell us a little about yourselves. We'll start with Jesse and then move to Alan. My name is Jesse Berenger, and I am an associate attorney in my sixth year with Foley and Lardner here in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm Alan Van Fleet. I was uh, chair of this section in 2010 to 2011. Today, I am on my own doing mostly pro bono work, but I spent 40 years with big law, first with Vincent and Elkins, then uh, Greenberg Traurig, and lastly with McDermott, Will, and Emery. Well, thank you for joining us. We're here to discuss pro bono work in general and then to learn from Alan. Alan, you've had a successful career as an antitrust lawyer as well as a litigator. But what sets you apart also includes your long commitment to pro bono work. What is it like to have been so committed to pro bono work and then busy with your antitrust practice? Well, fortunately, today I'm less busy with antitrust practice and get to devote most of my time to either pro bono work outright or taking appointments from the court, generally representing juveniles. But uh, through my career, I was very fortunate to have mentors and have firms that also valued pro bono work uh, for itself as well for the skills you could pick up from it. So it's um, it's been good. It's been for the Good for the head, good for the heart. So speaking to your pro bono experience, at what point would you say you got inspired to do pro bono work? Was there an event, a particular person? If you could explain that for us, that would be great. (laughs) The cliché would have to be when, when I was in junior high school and reading To Kill a Mockingbird, right? And um, I I grew up in the segregated South. I mean, the South did not desegregate with Brown versus Board of Education for many years after that. In fact, uh, even in in junior high, I would walk past the colored junior high school in order to get to mine. And that continued through high school, through the end of the 1960s. And the civil rights movement was underway. I mean, I witnessed I didn't witness, lived through the assassination of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, and from the get-go assumed that I would be some sort of civil rights lawyer. You know, I suppose my first pro bono experience was in law school when, in my third year, I worked with Jack Greenberg, uh, who succeeded Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP Inc. Fund. I took his course on race and poverty, which basically ended up being working on uh, race discrimination in death penalties. And uh, I have to say, while it was not pro bono since it was my very first paying legal job, the summer after my second year, I um, worked with the Employment Rights Project that was connected with my law school and headed up by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, it sounds like you've been committed to pro bono, at least get inspired to do pro bono work early on. Would you say your view on pro bono work has changed over the years? I think if it's changed, I I learned or maybe at least justified in my career that you can do regular commercial 
frankly, high-paying work such as antitrust and also do pro bono work. My mentor, Harry Reasoner, who was chair of this section many years before I was, was always committed to pro bono work. And when I started working at Vincent and Elkins, every young litigator who came in had to work on the Guajardo case. Guajardo versus Estelle was a class action prisoner's rights case uh, involving the right of prisoners first to get uncensored mail from their lawyers and at least marginally censored mail from other people. And from that time onward, Harry encouraged all of us to continue our work doing pro bono matters. So then how many pro bono cases would you say that you've had on your docket throughout your career? Dozens. And when we talk about pro bono work, it's it's not just individual cases. It's not just individual cases. There are many opportunities to work with State Bar, State Bar Foundation, National Bar Foundation organizations, or just irregular do-gooder organizations to work on a systemic level. One of the early things I did with Texas Appleseed was to uh, help with the research, the writing, and lobbying for uh, Texas to reform the way indigent people get counsel appointed. And there are a lot of different skills. In fact, it was at Texas Appleseed who talked with many of us on the board who are normal day jobs, are you know, white shoe corporate lawyers, but continue to do this kind of work. And she said, and I love this, she said, well, y'all are just part-time public interest lawyers. So I guess my view changed that you didn't really have to choose between uh, the commercial world, the corporate world, and public interest law. You can be a part-time public interest lawyer. Right. You mentioned the case that you had before, and you also have some cases in front of the Supreme Court. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Probably the one that had the longest run and was the most interesting, at least most people were interested in, is the uh, Fisher versus University of Texas case, which was uh, decided in 2015. It was actually up and down twice before the Supreme Court involving Texas's affirmative action program. Affirmative action is really a misnomer and outdated because, you know, race-conscious admissions procedures are all about diversity. Uh, long ago, in fact, in Bakke, struck down the notion that any university, any school could just admit folks according to race or ethnicity just because we want more for reparations or for whatever reason. It has to contribute to diversity. I had first been involved with the University of Texas back in the Hopwood case in the 1990s where the Fifth Circuit frankly struck down any consideration of race. Harry got me involved in that case. It did not turn out well at the Fifth Circuit. We actually won at the district court, and the Supreme Court denied certiorari. So years later, after the Gratz case and after a Gruber case came down and the University of Texas rethought how are we, do we need and how should we do race-conscious admissions toward the goal of increasing diversity, They had already been in the district court up to the Fifth Circuit, were in the Supreme Court. Certiorari had been granted, and I got a call 
from the general counsel of UT who had just been a staff lawyer at the time of the Hopwood case and said, would you like to be involved in writing an amicus brief outlining Texas's history of racial discrimination in education? Because that was the part you developed at trial during the Hopwood case. And we're frankly a little embarrassed to tattle on ourselves. And I said, sure anything to help you out. And then the cool thing said, well, we have two potential clients for you to represent. One is the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. The other is the family of Heman Sweat. So I learned about Heman Sweat in college. Sweat versus Painter was the first case where the Supreme Court ordered an institution, the University of Texas School of Law, to admit an African-American candidate. And in part of the Hopwood case, particularly in my opening argument, I talked about Sweat and Painter. And the opportunity to be a part of this historic family was too much to pass up. And so the tenor of the brief changed completely from what I thought it would be, sort of a regurgitation of some of the uh, facts we brought out during Hopwood, to molded around the story of Heman Sweat, that decision in 19, uh, what was it, 1950, four years before Brown versus Board of Education, the lessons learned there and how they applied to what UT was doing now and the way the whole issue of creating a diverse student body and how important that was uh, is today. The brief got some notoriety. Tony Morrow liked it. Professor Greenfield, who writes for the New York Times up at Yale, liked it. And so I got invited to talk on shows like this and lecture across the country, and it uh, really took off. It didn't get much play going up to the Supreme Court the first time, but when the Fifth Circuit took it on remand, they quoted from the brief quite a lot, the statistics on how Texas public schools are resegregating, the virtues of looking beyond, okay, we got so many Hispanics, we got so many blacks, we have so many Asian Americans to look beyond that in a holistic review because not all blacks are alike, not all Hispanics are alike, not all Asians are alike, right? And so the Fifth Circuit decision quoted the brief, cited a lot of the facts that without attribution. And then, you know, we went up to the Supreme Court the second time and uh, prevailed on a slim vote. Wow, what a story. But it sounds like quite different from your day-to-day practice, right? If a young lawyer uh, who is like Jesse, who practices antitrust law and who wants to pick up some pro bono work, what kind of advice you would give to Jesse? Or Jesse, we have more specific questions to ask. (laughs) Well, let me say, it's different, and yet it's not. For example, just on the Fisher brief for the Sweat family, I dealt with folks at the, first at the Harvard Civil Rights Institute, and then uh, Orfield moved out to UCLA, and we, we delved into the statistics of housing discrimination, and particularly the resegregation of public schools in the country and in particular Texas and very particularly in the urban areas of Texas in in a way that maybe not as sophisticated as a regression analysis proving unilateral effects in a merger, but those skills translate. You're not afraid of the numbers and in kind of a cross-pollination, 
like the Fisher brief, you had to take those numbers and yet weave them into a human story. And so many times I've found that skills you pick up dealing with real human beings, right? Real human beings, not necessarily corporate persons, translates in the antitrust or the copyright or the patent area in that everything, everything is a clash of human stories and you've got to find that human story. Some of the pro bono work I did over the years has been representing political asylees, refugees coming up and seeking political asylum. And there in particular, when you're before an immigration judge, all you have is the human story. Yes, you can learn, you can learn uh, pretty quickly the four standards you have to meet under the UN Convention on Refugees that are incorporated in US law, but you gotta get in and find that human story and that translates actually very well and it used to be, not so much given the current administration and policies at the border, that you could get an actual trial in an asylum case and get it pretty quickly Whereas an antitrust trial, if it ever goes to trial, you're going to get one in a decade. So uh, a lot of pro bono work had helped me develop trial skills that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. And Alan, would you say that the pro bono work maybe helped you develop those trial skills sooner than you would have otherwise developed them? Or do you feel like pro bono really helped you develop your career in private practice? Well, certainly the trial skills. I mean, the first argument I had in a federal court was on a pro bono appeal from the denial of a habeas corpus petition as being out of time by a, let's say, marginally intelligent inmate. But again, Harry got us all signed up to take pro bono appeals uh, that the Fifth Circuit would say, we think this one it was filed pro se, but we really think this person needs a lawyer, and it's a pretty good, interesting case. So several of us took those, and my very first argument before the Fifth Circuit uh, was on a pro bono case. You know, one of the last things I did with Big Law, encouraged one of my mentees to take a pro bono case, we did a prisoner beating case in a very hostile jurisdiction. Folks in Houston, Texas don't necessarily think prisoners ought to go unbeaten. And it develops skills you don't necessarily get to do in an antitrust trial, like I had uh, Nick Grimmer, who had been my chair's assistant, and we'll talk about pro bono and antitrust in a moment with Nick. But, you know, a real question was when this prisoner had been thrown down, was he already handcuffed or not? He says he was. The guard says, oh, no, no, he wasn't. But there was a photograph of him with his coat down around his shoulders with the handcuffs on. And say, oh, no, 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 he was uh, handcuffed when that happened. And I had Nick literally throw me down to show if he had not been handcuffed, his coat couldn't have been that way. And as I'm walking off pretending to be handcuffed, one juror says, oh, I see it now. So you get to do some interesting, fun stuff that not necessarily comes up in an antitrust trial. But in some ways, it gets you out there and lets you be unafraid to try some things in the courtroom uh, that can translate to putting on an effective antitrust presentation, 
you know, whether it's in a compliance program, you got to keep these people's attention, right. whether it's to an enforcer, you got to convince them these are actually good people who are trying to do the right thing. So even though you know, may have stepped over the line, you should go easy on them. Right. It's uh, all about getting back down to that human story. So we've talked a lot of the pro bono discussion we've been having has been on litigation and kind of as we referenced before and as we talked about, you know, off mic, so to speak, there are other avenues that antitrust litigators, antitrust attorneys, just any attorney can get involved in. What are, in your opinion, some of those other avenues that are available? Sure. I think, as I mentioned, you can get involved with an organization, whether it's sponsored by a formal state or national bar association. I know the D.C. bar is very active in trying to get folks out and doing pro bono work. I get the emails still myself. (laughs) Um, And all of those organizations need organizing help. So while you may not be in the courtroom yourself, if you're there helping with their finances, with their organization, with the structure, with how to do a meeting, how to keep the papers filed, an outfit like Texas Appleseed or or the National Appleseed, there are branches everywhere, including here in D.C., that's helping the work get done that wouldn't get done without it. There are uh, many folks, for example, in the Houston Volunteer Lawyers Program who spend countless hours in training, in organizing, in calling up people to go do the cases that contribute every bit as much as those of us who show up in the courtroom. No question about that. They're lobbying things. As I said, I had never tried to lobby anything buddy on anything. Uh, Appleseed got me involved at the state house and then on some full disclosures of remittance fees and exchange rates when people send money, say, to the relatives in Mexico. Started out as a little Texas project that we got passed and then it came part of uh, federal legislation as well. I didn't know anything about lobbying. I knew how to make from antitrust and, and other Uh, type of matters, a pretty good public policy argument that you can do from any vantage point. Yeah. Sounds like there are many ways to get involved and there are many skills that you can learn from the pro bono work. But if there is one piece of advice you can give to young lawyers, what are things that they should watch out for before they take on a pro bono case or uh, relevant work? Watch out from your heart. It'll get taken away. (laughs) It'll get taken away. You will come away doing this stuff feeling so good and so proud of being a lawyer that it may be hard to going back and reading that 10,000th bill of sale underlying the price discrimination charge. (laughs) And it, it can be anything. Yeah, we talked about the big cases in the Supreme Court and the uh, interesting political asylum cases. But I've done little things like a volunteer divorce and protective order that kept a woman and a child away from an abusive husband. I traveled up by car to help a phlebotomist who took my platelets regularly adopt a child. And, you know, things like that will fill your heart more than you can imagine. So the warning, I suppose, is don't sit back. Just do it. 
Just do it. You can learn. You went to law school. You, you read all kinds of things. You got inspired by those constitutional law cases you read about. You got inspired by people like Thurgood Marshall and uh, Jack Greenberg and whatnot. Just go do it. I mean, like on the, the first political asylum case I did, I took off the weekend after Thanksgiving and listened to cassette tapes on the way down to the border. That's how I learned about political asylum law. But let me say, there was great support from ProBar, which was a joint venture between the ABA uh, section of uh, international law and uh, the Texas State Bar, and they had people on the ground. Here's what you need to prove this, that, and the other. We'll help you. We'll review your review your papers and and provide this stuff. There are plenty of opportunities to not only jump in but to get help and get the confidence you need to go do something new. Besides doing new stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Jesse and Alan for joining us today. Thank you, Enora. And thank you, Alan. This thank was, you, Jesse. Thank you, Enora. Alan, if our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Sure. Best way is my email, alanvanfleet at gmail.com. The only tricky thing is Alan is A-L-L-A-N. And you know what, it slipped my mind, but on the notion of just get out and do it, don't worry about your skill level. One, one thing I did when I was uh, chair of the section, we have these uh, leadership retreats, which you both can look forward to. And uh, th this one, we went out of the country for the first time. We were in Costa Rica, and there's always a golf tournament, and there's always a volleyball tournament. And um, for the first time, I introduced a public service project. And a bunch of antitrust lawyers went over to a school and painted it. And I can tell you, as painters, we were excellent antitrust lawyers. We all <laughs> thought we did a terrible job. But then when we were done, at the end of the day, a little tired, whatnot, the villagers brought out uh, their kids and two marimbas. They played for us. And um, ah, getting a little verklempt. And sort of the village leader said, thank you for coming and doing this with the work we have to do in the fields. It would take us five years to get this done, what you did in one day. And as I said, as painters, we were very good antitrust lawyers. We didn't think we did a good job, but it was so welcomed. Go do it. Great, great. This concludes another podcast with the ABA section of antitrust. If you like what you heard, please join us in person at some of our upcoming conferences. Details are available at ambar.org slash antitrust. I am Anora Wan. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.